I'm joined by Chris Dempsey. Chris uh, has had an extraordinary year. Uh, he has uh, served as the co-chair of an organization in Boston that's had a really outsized impact. Their name is No Boston Olympics. Chris, thank you for joining us. Uh, my first question to you is the Olympics, the Summer Games, Boston. For those who don't know the history here, can you offer just a brief summary of what was happening? Take us back. Sure. So in early 2013, a couple guys got together who thought that bringing the Olympics might make a lot of sense. Uh, and they kicked it around and they brought it to the mayor's office and Mayor Menino at the time said, no thanks, I'm not interested. But a few weeks after that, Mayor Menino decided that he would not run for re-election. And all of a sudden the idea had sort of a new birth. Uh, and it was really led by a couple of leaders in Boston business community who over the course of 2013 and then 2014 um, started to push this idea, uh, sharing uh, ideas with the media, uh, bringing um, elected leaders and, and business folks together to try to see what a plan would look like, and then ultimately working with the USOC. My group, No Boston Olympics, was aware of that happening in 2013, and so we decided to come together as a group in November of 2013, we formed in a living room uh, in the Deacon Hill neighborhood of Boston, um, three people just saying, look, you know, we've seen the evidence that Olympics do not leave cities better off. We're concerned that this bid already has a lot of momentum, even at that early stage. And we think we need to do something to help level the playing field and make sure that the other side of the story is being told. Fast forward all the way to January 8th, 2015, happens to be exactly a year ago today uh, that you and I are talking, Sean, and the United States Olympic Committee meets in Denver, Colorado at the airport there, and their board of 16 board members votes and decides to award the United States bid to Boston over bids from Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Wow. So the, the part that I just, you, you, you caught me there by surprise. Your organization wasn't an organization. It was three people in a living room in 2013. Just talk to me a little bit about that. What was your background? What, what made you think that you could take on, you know, the mayor, uh, these, these, uh, you know, moneyed and, and, and longstanding interests inside the city of Boston? Well, we knew that we could never match their firepower, but we felt like we had the facts on our side and we were hopeful that the media in Boston and the public at large would really see the value in having a healthy debate rather than um, sort of having a herd mentality of agreeing that this was a good idea. Um, so our backgrounds were in uh, government, in politics, in, in public policy, in business. Um, two of us had MBAs. I had worked on uh, political campaigns for people like Joe Kennedy III, the current congressman. I had also worked for um, Deval Patrick, who was, of course, governor in Massachusetts uh, at that time. Um, and Liam Kerr and Connor Units were my fellow co-founders. Um, so we had some experience in uh, political communications and in grassroots organizations. The Deval Patrick campaign was very much a grassroots campaign. And so we, we had a feel for what that would be like. 
but we always knew that we would be outmatched in terms of resources. Our job was really just to try to get good information out there and hope that the media and the public would sort of take it from there. Why do you think your work galvanized people? Uh, why did people join you? I mean, why you? Why not someone else? Well, at the time, we were really the only organization talking about it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the civic institutions in Boston that would normally raise some concerns about a uh, $10 to $20 billion project um, at ta- with taxpayer risk, um, the, the organizations that would normally speak out against that and raise some concerns were essentially kind of conflicted out of the debate because uh, a lot of their funding was derived from the very same people who were pushing the bit. Um, and so they were just not in a position to um, provide the other side of the story. It was going to have to be a citizen-led movement, uh, one that um, was never going to have a lot of funding and not necessarily have a lot of stature, at least in the early days. Um, but we had a very consistent message, and that message was, um, look, there are some positives to bringing the games to town, and certainly Boston could pull off an Olympics if that's what we decided to do. But there are enormous costs associated with that. In particular, there are opportunity costs. Because your city's civic infrastructure focuses on the Olympics, they are less focused on much more important issues like education, healthcare, transportation, open space, any number of other things that people really value and care about and which ultimately leave your city and your region much better off. And so we had a very positive message of Boston is a great city. We could do this, but there's so many other things that we should be doing. Let's bring the attention back to those things rather than being worried about building a stadium and a velodrome and an aquatic center and catering to the International Olympic Committee. So let's talk tactics real quick. How did you get started beyond the living room? What happened? What, what, what had to occur? What did occur? One of, one of the great things with, um, with all these new technologies out there is that the cost of starting an organization and raising its profile are very low. So we started by registering a URL, nobossolympics.org. We got it, you know, that cost about 10 bucks. Um, we got a Twitter account, nobossolympics. That's free. Um, and then we started posting some information on, on those two places um, and um, and starting to kind of become a depository of good information and then also trying to share that. Um, and very quickly, uh, you know, there was a back and forth on Twitter between us and the proponents about whether or not this was a good idea. The media picked up on that, uh, and pretty soon there were articles about how wait a minute, it's not just a one-sided story here. It's not just a positive to have the Olympics. There's also this other side to be told. Um, so we went from, um, you know, obscurity to um, having a relatively high profile over the course of just a few months um, based on some interaction on Twitter and having a web page where people could go and learn more information. And my mother tells me never to talk about money, but let's talk about money. How much did you spend to take on these, uh, these, these very, very powerful forces in the city in Boston and in the International Olympic Committee and the U.S. Olympic Committee. Yeah. So, so Boston 2024 had a very impressive fundraising effort. Um, they spent more than $15 million on their entire effort. Their average contribution size was north of $70,000. So it was um, very large six and seven figure contributions from individuals and corporations and foundations. Um, 
On, on the other hand, um, on our side, our average contribution size was about $100. Um, we ended up raising over the course of two years about $35,000, more or less, um, but we actually spent less than $10,000 on the entire effort. So we were outspent 1,500 to one by Boston 2024, but we're still able to, to win the debate um, because we were efficient with those dollars and because we used earned media and social media to get our message out there. So history clearly shows you as the victor, um, but that's the easy answer. There were almost certainly some obstacles that you encountered along the way. You must have gotten stuck along the way. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about what those might have been? Where did you get stuck? What, what obstacles did you encounter? And how did you overcome them? Sure. Well, I mean, look, we were, um, we were making this up as we went along. You know, uh, we had kind of a core strategy of uh, be nimble, be responsive, uh, and try to put good facts and good information out there. Um, but we never had a plan of, okay, this is what the next six months look like. This is what the next year looks like. This is how we um, build our organization. Uh, and, and so there were uh, some real challenges and some, some real soul-searching at a number of points in the process. Um, you know, a, a year ago today. So, so let's let's let's, let's yeah. pause on that for one quick second, if I can, just because I think that's really interesting to a lot of folks. Because so many folks know, you know, you need a plan, and yet you all took what I call the Indiana Jones approach. You know, don't ask me; I'm making this up as I go. Yeah. But that that created its own challenges, and you had an MBA, so did your, one of your colleagues. You you have a background in business; you, you see value in planning, and yet there was no plan. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I've always loved that phrase, um, which I think is an Eisenhower quote, although I'm not sure. It's attributed to him. I'm not sure if he actually said it or not. But um, it's, it's something like um, planning is essential, but plans are worthless. Um, and basically how I interpret that is you need to understand your strategy. You need to have a sense of um, how you how you could potentially win the argument. Um, but it's going to be such a dynamic environment with so much changing and so much out of your control that it's not worth spending a lot of time sort of charting out what every day or every week or every month is going to look like. You just don't, you just don't know uh, what's around the corner. And so you need to be – your strategy and your planning is really about being responsive uh, and being nimble and having kind of a, a core message that you're always going to iterate off of and riff off of, uh, but not to sort of have some – um, some rigid structure about how you're going to approach this problem. Okay, let's get back to the obstacles. I cut you short there. Sure. So um, there was, you know, there were a lot of moments of soul searching. I mean, I think um, for for me and one of my other co-chairs, uh, Kelly Gossett, uh, you know, in February and March of 2015, um, we actually both left our jobs. Um, so Kelly was in the nonprofit world. She'd been an advocate advocate in the, in the social service world, and I had been working at Bain & Company, the consulting firm. Uh, and so by uh, the end of March 2015, neither of us were getting a paycheck, and our work with Novos Olympics was purely volunteer. So um, there were some tough days in there thinking about how long, how long can we um, do this for? How is, is this really sustainable? Will we ever be able to get to a point with fundraising where we can afford to pay ourselves and um, and Make this something that can be a lasting effort. Uh, we were we were very fortunate that uh, within a few months of of uh, leaving our jobs, you know, the tide really started to turn, and it looked like we had the momentum, and it became clear that there was potential for the bid to end 
uh, before the important September 2015 date when the USOC had to submit a city to the IOC. So uh, there were some there were some really dark days, uh, and and it was kind of not just from an organizational perspective, from, but from a very personal perspective. Um, you, you know, it was impossible for me or for Kelly or for Liam to uh, untie uh, or, or uh, intermediate the the, uh, the personal life and the and the organizational life here. We were dedicating ourselves to it full time and um, and very much wrapped up in it. And so you talked about momentum there. I want to make sure we don't just uh, move past that. Where did the momentum come from? What happened? Well, I think what happened is that, um, you know, the USOC had forced Boston 2024 to conduct a process that was very private and that did not involve the public throughout all of 2014. Uh, And when Boston 2024 finally released its bid to the public, there was a lot in there that people were not happy about, um, that caught neighborhoods and residents by surprise, where they started to realize this is not just a really fun event. It also has some significant consequences for our community. And I think um, magnifying that was that there was some real misinformation or um, uh, or inaccuracies in those bidding documents. And so uh, Boston 2024's credibility really took a hit there. Um, they had developed this bid behind closed doors, and it hadn't been tested. It hadn't had that sort of sunlight on it um, to, to actually improve it. Uh, and, and so um, as people saw more uh, about sort of what was in store for them, uh, the public really began to realize that this was just not a good deal. And you talked a little bit about the media. How important was uh, playing a public game uh, or having a public conversation? Yeah. How, how important yeah. was that to, to this work? The, the media was absolutely essential to our efforts. Uh, we feel incredibly fortunate to be in a region that has a dynamic and thriving press. Uh, like anywhere in the country, uh, you know, uh, journalism – as an industry is suffering, uh, and there are fewer and fewer resources to bring to bear there. But um, there really are some amazing journalists, both longtime journalists in Boston, and also uh, one of the great things about this effort was it was very young journalists who were in their first or second jobs with smaller uh, outlets who were breaking some of this news and doing investigative reporting. Uh, they really helped drive the conversation, and they were very good about showing both sides of the story. We had a very responsive strategy where Boston 2024 would push an idea or uh, have a a significant media effort to talk about the bid, and we needed to be there and to be responsive with a a quote or a statement or with a call to a journalist to talk about why the things that Boston 2024 was saying or pushing didn't make sense or what the other side of the story was. Uh, and, and so we were lucky to be included in a lot of those stories um, to really raise our profile um, so that it looked like we were a much uh, larger and more dynamic organization than we actually were. So let's talk about that for a quick second. Uh, the Potemkin Village strategy. It was just the three of you, and yet for many, very, very many people who were observing from the outside, in fact, observing from across the globe, it was easy to assume that this was an effort of 
tens, if not dozens, if not hundreds of people. Yep. So, look, there there were three of us who were the core and who were working on it uh, by the end, kind of 24-7. But there were many other people that were able to rally around the No Boss Olympics brand. Um, and I and I think that um, was a result of our ability to create kind of an organization that um, looked like it looked like it was strong, but also looked open and also looked uh, welcoming to people at the grassroots level. Um, so there were there were those dozens of volunteers helping, um, but there was certainly never you know the fancy office space or the significant um, you know contributors uh, or the powerful elected leaders that were pulling strings behind the scenes. We were a true grassroots effort working out of cafes and out of people's living rooms and, uh, you know, painting our own signs when we needed to to go to a public meeting. Uh, and let's talk about what ultimately happened. You get to September of this past year, and what happens? So uh, over the course of the spring and the summer, public support for Boston 2024 dropped from uh, the mid-50s to the high 30s, low 40s, and it really plateaued around 40%. Uh, Meanwhile, opposition in public polling uh, rose from the mid-30s up to the low 50s and really stuck around 50%. And so uh, it was very clear to really everyone, Boston 2024, the USOC, elected leaders, uh, that this was not a popular bid. Uh, And the USOC was in this uh, essentially an untenable position where they were trying to stick with Boston and trying to stick with the uh, Boston 2024 group they had awarded this uh, this bid to, um, but without the the political and popular backing that they needed. At the same time, they're facing a date from the International Olympic Committee, which is their partner at the international level, to submit a bid by September 15th. And so uh, in, the, in the middle of summer, at the end of July, actually, the USOC finally announced that it would be pulling the bid uh, because it did not believe that it would ever be able to achieve the public support that it needed to. Uh, a few months later, uh, the USOC uh, kind of, after closing ranks for a little bit, came back out and uh, and gave the bid to a bidding group from Los Angeles. Um, so over the next few years, people will be hearing a lot about the Los Angeles 2024 bid, um, but that was meant to be the, the Boston bid. We were able to defeat that. What surprised you about this work and uh, this experience? Well, I think um, for me it was a real reminder and confirmation that uh, a group of citizens in in this vibrant democracy that we have, a group of citizens really can have an impact uh, and really can make a difference up against some very powerful forces. Um, it, it does not necessarily take a significant amount of resources to have an incredible impact. Uh, you've got to be, uh, you've got to have the facts on your side. You've got to have good information and a good argument. Um, but if you can um, position that information in the right way, um, you really can uh, create a a movement and an organization um, that can have uh, that can punch above its weight and um, and make a difference uh, in something that's important to you. Uh, so. Uh, I don't know if that's a surprise because I like to think that's always been true, but it was a very good reminder of the of the power of a grassroots effort. And so, if we sort of take the thirty thousand foot view here, if we could, um, 
Let's just fill. Are there a few lessons you think that you'd take away, sort of the, the two or three things that if you were going to do this all again, these would be in the playbook? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think you um, you have to take advantage of some of the opportunities that new technologies have created to um, very quickly form an organization and raise that organization's profile. We were we were uh, able to go from kind of zero to sixty uh, in a matter of months uh, because of those platforms. So that's everything from Twitter and Facebook and uh, WordPress um, to uh, the, the organizing tool that we use, which was great, called Nation Builder, um, which I recommend to any uh, social organization or nonprofit that wants to organize people. That was a great way for us to. Um, to bring people into the fold. So I think that's that's one lesson. Um, the second is to um, continue to use, and most organizations do this already, but continue to use the more traditional media um, as a platform and try to um, try to develop earned media where you are producing information and facts and balancing out an argument for reporters um, so that uh, you make it easy, essentially, for reporters to have information at their fingertips and to have that other side of the story. Reporters want to um, to tell both sides of the story, and uh, they are looking for uh, resources to do that. And so if you can provide that, you can really uh, increase your brand and your recognition and get good information out there to the public. And where else could you see this approach working? Is there anything else that you sort of looked out there and said, you know, this model – has application in, in, in this space or that space. Yes. I can really see it working there. So, you know, I think that um, it, it was a unique situation because, uh, look, bringing the Olympics to town is this incredible combination of sports and politics and government and transportation and housing. It's all of, it raises all of these issues. And so it was an incredibly high-profile issue um, in greater Boston. So it, it was unique. On the other hand, I do think that the strategy that we use could be broadly applicable to um, to situations where uh, there are a small group of special interests pushing a particular idea, and the public uh, and the public interest is sort of is sort of affected somewhat broadly, but that it can be hard to organize around it. I think what we one thing that we showed is that um, it is it is now easier. Uh, in today's world, to organize that sort of broad public to uh, to speak up and to magnify, to organize them, bring them together to speak up and magnify their voice, um, so that they they can really uh, match the uh, better funded um, and more powerful um, smaller special interest groups that are pushing a particular idea. So um, whether your you know whether your issue is more funding for social services or um, you know, working against ethanol subsidies or, um, you know, any, anything in the entire range of public policy where the, the broader public uh, needs to have their voice heard, I think our model could be, and I hope it could be, uh, instructive. And so obviously our audience is, is uniquely interested in, in, in this work from a lens of communication. Right, and obviously a huge element of, of this work was communication. But but I'd like to actually just focus on it for a brief moment, and that is a couple questions. One would be, what does the word communication mean to you? What, are, what do you think about 
know, what is that? What comes to mind when you hear that word? Well, um, you know, I think it's, I think in a broad public policy issue like this, um, it's about uh, relating the the public policy to people's everyday lives and something that they can understand and grasp onto. And one thing that was effective about the uh, anti-Boston 2024 movement here is that um, there were different messages that appealed to different types of people. There was a whole segment of the population that was opposed to Boston 2024 because there was going to be a lot of traffic for three weeks. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that compelled me to uh, to fight this. Uh, I, I thought the three weeks would have been kind of a lot of fun. It was the years leading up to it and the years afterwards that were going to be significantly harmed. Um, so, but there, we did want to appeal to those groups. We wanted those people to be on our side. So we had a um, particular part of our message that did appeal to that. That was around the fact that uh, the IOC actually required that special lanes be created on every highway in the state so that IOC dignitaries and sponsors can have um, uh, unobstructed trips where everyone else is sitting in traffic. If you're someone that's already worried about traffic and then you hear that, that really makes you angry and it really brings you to our side. Then there were a whole other set of people that were concerned about some of the, uh, the civil rights uh, and civil liberties impacts around an Olympics, the fact that um, they tend to be associated with uh, governments kind of clamping down on expression to, so that they can put on a pretty face for TV cameras. Uh, and so we wanted to appeal to those groups also. And then there were a whole bunch of people in the middle who uh, were fine with the Olympics one way or the other, but they didn't want to have to use tax dollars for it. Uh, and so we could talk about the fact that the International Olympic Committee requires this taxpayer guarantee for cost overruns. Um, so I think at the end of the day, those, you know, 50% plus of people around the state who were on our side had different reasons um, for it, and we were for opposing it, and we were able to kind of communicate with each of them, ultimately on kind of an individual basis. So if you don't mind my putting words into your mouth, it sounds to me like to you, communications was more than just a press release. It was more than a tweet. It was more than a quote in a newspaper article. It was about gathering intelligence. It was about understanding an audience, it was about building relationships. Is that, that a fair reflection of what you were thinking? Yeah, I think that's right. And, I, you know, I think, um, you know, our, our co-chair's backgrounds in political campaigns was probably um, what allowed us to or enabled us to think that way. Um, at, at the end of the day, we were trying to kind of build a coalition of different constituencies. And um, effectively, people were going to sort of vote for our effort for a whole set of different reasons, and we needed to appeal to, to all of those things. That's right. Chris, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much. I guess my last question would be, what's next for you? What's next for the team? So we get asked a lot, um, you know, whether No Boston Olympics will continue on and try to fight for some of the things that we talked about as a better alternative to the Olympics. I, I think the organization itself will um, will probably go away, and we don't um, we don't necessarily think that. Um, we'll be able as an organization to move on to the next thing because we did have a broad coalition. We had um, very serious supporters who were Tea Party conservatives and very serious supporters who were progressives uh, and a whole bunch of people in the middle. So we won't necessarily agree on what the next issue is. You will see certainly the three co-chairs um, and many others who are involved in the Boston Olympics continuing on in civic life. It's um, what we care about. It's what we like to do. Uh, and so 
um, we will continue to be part of the broader debate across Massachusetts about where, how we need to grow and how we need to change as a city. Um, in the meantime, I think uh, Kelly and I are happy to uh, be back in the working world and uh, and get a paycheck again after spending six months uh, not getting paid in 2015. So, um, you know, it's sort of back to our daily lives, uh, but at the same time, uh, we're back with a kind of renewed feeling about um, how important some of these debates are and our ability to have an impact on them. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you uh, so much for making the time for us. Really appreciate it. Probably you know, sometime next week with the transcript. Sounds good, Sean. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Cheers.